This is an ABC News special, Texas Elementary School Shooting. Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. Let me tell you some of their names. Xavier Lopez, 10 years old. Amaray Joe Garza, 10 years old. Rogelio Torres, 10 years old. J.C. Luavanos, 10 years old. Jayla Silgaro, 11 years old. Annabelle Rodriguez, 10 years old. Just some of the 19 children killed by the gunmen in Uvalde, Texas, plus teachers Eva Morales and Irma Garcia, all in a classroom where the shooter opened fire. Information has been rolling in fast today on the shooting. The debate over access to guns has been renewed and mental health. I want to begin tonight. ABC's Jim Ryan, who is in Uvalde. Jim, good evening to you. Last night, torrential rains, winds, hail all over this place. Today, beautiful blue skies and flags all over this community flying at half-staff to one of those 19 children and two adults who were killed. And still hopes and prayers prayers coming up from these people for those still hospitalized, including a 66-year-old woman. That woman was the first of the shooting victims, Alex. She is the grandmother of the shooter, shot right between the eyes. Somehow she survived. She went stumbling out into the street. The neighbors helped her. They got her medical help. She was flown to San Antonio for treatment. Two other people, also two adults, are being treated at Brook Army Medical Center. They, too, were listed in critical condition early this morning. So people are still hospitalized. People are still hurting physically. Here in Uvalde, people are hurting emotionally. Families without their loved ones, the tiniest loved ones in many of those families. Alex. The children so young. Jim, the family members, what are they saying tonight? Well, they're talking in in the kindest possible way about their children, of course. Uh, they're remembering these these children for whom they had such great hope, uh, little children who were athletes, 10-year-old girl who was a star softball player, a child who loved to draw, another who loved to sing. All of them considered wonderful friends to each other and to the rest of this community and really considered the, the hope of Uvalde and the future of this place. And, and now for so many families, uh, that, that hope has been snuffed out in just a, an instant. Jim, the politics of all of this earlier today during the governor's news conference, Governor Abbott, there was quite a moment. Beto O'Rourke stood up in that news conference, uh, challenged Governor Abbott. He was escorted out by police. He spoke outside of it saying that something needs to be done. There is a differing of opinions in in Texas tonight, but a lot of politics, the governor's race over all of this. Yeah, absolutely. That This whole thing is cast against that backdrop. The governor's race coming up in November, pitting incumbent Greg Abbott against Democrat Beto O'Rourke. O'Rourke said that he was invited to that news conference today by family members who had lost children, that he was there and, and didn't plan to say anything. He says it was a spontaneous eruption of fury when Governor Abbott was turning the mic over to the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and when he stood up and started yelling about gun control and gun laws. Later, Greg Abbott said that it's not guns, but it's mental health that it needs to be addressed in the state, although he said the suspect in this case had no history of mental health issues. Those on stage saying it was political theater by Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke saying something needs to change and that it wasn't. Jim, stand by. We'll come back to you this hour. I want to jump over ABC's Aaron Katursky now. And Aaron, what are we learning new about the shooter tonight? The gunman, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, seems to have been quite a troubled young man, Alex. 
the authorities have been going through his social media posts and talking to friends and relatives, as have we. And while the governor of Texas said there there was no obvious forewarning and, and no diagnosed mental health history there, we are getting a picture of someone who seems isolated from his peers, someone who would get into fights, a history of truancy, and, and someone who, it appears, may have been prone to violence. As authorities have been digging into those social media posts, they're seeing violent content, including a history of animal abuse that the suspect would freely post on social media. We heard from the, the governor today talking about, well, that there were warnings uh, that were posted on Facebook. Meta has come back and said, well, those were direct messages, nothing out there publicly. Anything that we know publicly that, that was out there that would have been that warning other than behavior leading up to it, but actual warnings that something like this was coming, anything that, that family we know that they saw, friends, anybody around him? Alex, if there were any warning signs, authorities would have only had eight days to really figure this out. That's the time frame between the shooter turning 18 years old and then carrying out the massacre. One day after his 18th birthday is when we're told Salvador Ramos bought his first of two AR-15 style rifles at a gun shop not far from his house. A couple of days later, he goes back to buy a second AR-15 style rifle and one of those Rifles was what police believe was used in this massacre that left 19 kids dead along with two of their teachers. The gunfire started with his grandmother, and we're not sure still what touched that off. Authorities are working to to determine that as well. His grandfather spoke of a, a little bit of a fight involving a phone bill, but he described it as a bit of a tiff, nothing that would enrage to the point where gunfire or where you'd think gunfire would be necessary. Aaron, what are you learning about the response? We know there were heroes in what unfolded uh, yesterday, law enforcement, teachers who got involved. What went on outside and inside of the, the school? The authorities are still going frame by frame through any piece of video they can find to determine the exact details of how this unfolded. But, Alex, we know that there was a confrontation between the shooter and police officers outside the school building after the gunman had crashed his car near Robb Elementary School. And that confrontation continued inside. But this lasted at least a terrifying 40 minutes, according to the authorities, from the time that he entered the school classroom to the time that a tactical unit from Customs and Border Protection shot him dead and ended the threat. An incredibly long time that, that it was unfolding. Aaron Katursky, Aaron, thank you for all of your work. Thanks, Alex. I want to continue now with our team, ABC News Chief Investigative Reporter Josh Margolin, live in Uvalde. And Josh, you have new reporting tonight about who killed the shooter that we're just learning. Yeah, Alex, we're, we're starting to get a, a clearer picture, and it's, it's taken a little while with all the confusion yesterday and then the, 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 the number of casualties and the number of, uh, of law enforcement people who responded but the uh, senior officials from uh, CBP have now told our team that they believe that one of the customs SWAT team members fired the shot that uh, that fatally injured the shooter, ending ending the catastrophe yesterday. But obviously not not ending it soon enough because, as as Aaron just said, it's now confirmed that the gunman was in the school 
maybe as, as, as little as 40 minutes, maybe as much as an hour. That's a, a terribly long period of time for a deranged gunman to be in a building with kids. Incredibly long. And answers to those questions of why initially it was said that it was a shooting nearby and that the shooter was barricaded inside. But and then there was a delay that this went on for a, a very long time. Josh, do we know anything about why yesterday? Why Rob Elementary? We know the 18-year-old appears to have been disturbed, harming animals, social media posts, but why this? That, those are the key questions. Some, of, some pieces of those questions are coming into focus. As the governor and the head of uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety today said at a news conference, the gunman made threats. He was going to, after shooting his grandmother, he was going to be going to a school. So obviously it seems like going to a school was the intent. Was this the school that wasn't the intended target? Or did this car crash that we were talking about yesterday that made his, his vehicle undrivable, did that leave him at this school? So that's being asked. Investigators are trying to piece together why this school? What's the motivation? Was there a motivation? And then finally, as Aaron reported, they're trying to figure out the, the, the triggering thing that occurred. Was there some sort of a, a moment? Was there some sort of something that might have been this fight with the grandmother or something beyond that that set him off? He was obviously prone to violence. He was obviously disturbed. But, but, but why yesterday? And so many uh, questions still to remain, and it's always that, that question about motive. Josh, thank you. Vigil being held in Uvalde tonight, the community coming together to remember the 21 who were killed at Robb Elementary. 17 more injured, some seriously. Up next, we'll hear from a parent who knows what it's like to lose a daughter in a mass school shooting. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Listening to an ABC News special, Texas Elementary School Shooting. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. Tonight, so many Americans are asking the question of why. Why did this unfold yet again? And in many cases, Americans go right back to their corners, standing firm and pointing blame toward the other side, whether it be blaming guns or blaming mental health. And we're seeing that in Washington. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers here now. And Karen, politically, this has resurrected the gun debate, the mental health debate. What are you hearing in Washington from the White House, from lawmakers? Where is it going right now? What we're hearing from the president is he is reiterating his calls for Congress to do something. And today he said that one of those things should be the assault weapons ban. The president now two days in a row has said the idea that an 18 year old can walk into a store and buy what he calls a weapon of war. He says it's just wrong. It violates common sense. Alex, the president said today that the Second Amendment is not absolute and he's pushing Congress to do something about gun laws, calling 
calling on them to show some backbone, as he put it, show some courage to stand up to the very powerful gun lobby. But those calls might be falling on deaf ears on Capitol Hill because they've tried to do this before. You know, every time there is a mass shooting, anytime there is any reason to talk about changing gun laws, we go through the motions on this, where you talk about what could be done, where is the political appetite, where are the votes, and then ultimately it's the votes aren't there and something else comes along and the attention shifts to something else. And and that's where we are right now. So the House Democrats last year passed two different gun control bills. One was aimed at expanding background check requirements for gun sales, and the other was aimed at extending the review period for background checks from three days to 10 days. The Senate hasn't done anything on that because you need 60 votes to pass it and they don't have it. You need 10 Republicans to get on board. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer last night has said he was going to put those two House passed bills on the calendar. It's not clear yet if he's really going to do that. It's not clear when a vote would be held. And largely it would just be you know, kind of for show. They are not going to get 60 votes, but there are a lot of Democrats right now in Washington who are saying, we have to do this to get on the record. We need to show Americans where lawmakers stand on this. And Alex, basically, that means we need to show Americans that Republicans are blocking efforts like this. But then we heard from Republicans today in Mm -hmm. Texas saying, well, this is a Democrats not doing mental health reform and doing mm-hmm. real mental health change. Yeah, I think there are so many people driving in their car tonight or, or sitting at home saying, you know, we've heard this before. It's not going to go anywhere. Are there any signs that this will be any different? Or are we going down that same bumpy road that we've gone down before? kind of seems like it's the same bumpy road. And I think, you know, if you were just to play a soundbite or to read somebody a quote after an an incident like this, and if it focuses on mental health, you can assume which side it's coming from. If it focuses on changing gun laws, you can assume which side it's coming from. And neither side, you know, kind of deviates from these points on this. But I think when you look at the polling on this, and this is where it's really striking, because while Capitol Hill seems to be gridlocked and, and not able to move forward, and, and we talk about how there isn't political will, the American people have shown in polls that they want something to happen. 56% support an assault weapons ban. 86% of Americans say they support a red flag law that would allow authorities to temporarily take guns away from people who pose a threat to themselves or others. 89% of Americans, Alex, support background checks. So, you know, when can you get 86 or 89% of Americans to agree on anything? And it's really striking then when you see numbers like that to then not see action on Capitol Hill. Our colleague Rachel Scott was all over the, the Capitol today asking Republican lawmakers about that, telling them about those poll numbers, saying people want to see this. This is something that there's overwhelming support for. And by for the most part, Republican lawmakers ignored her and just kept walking. And we know the president will be heading to Uvalde. Yeah, the president said that he and the first lady will travel to Texas in the coming days to meet with the families who lost a child or families that lost a loved one at the elementary school. He said he wants to go to let them know that we have a sense of their pain. He says he wants to try and bring them some comfort to this community that's in shock, that's grieving and experiencing this trauma. The president also said the entire nation must be sending support to the community there. Karen, thanks. I turn now to somebody who unfortunately knows all too well what the parents in Uvalde are feeling tonight. Carlos Soto is the father of Vicky Soto. Vicky was a teacher who died in the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown in 2012. 
She died trying to hide her students and shield them. Carlos is with me now. He does not want to know details of this shooting. Carlos, you do know that it has happened again. How are you doing tonight? I try not to watch the news, block it out, stay busy, things like that. When I got the call last night, 5 o'clock around there, my daughter called me crying. She said, Dad, do not watch the news. I said, what's going on? She said, it's another shooting like Newtown happened. I said, okay, no problem. I shut my phone, TV and everything. I try to go to bed. You know, it, it's hard. You know, as a parent, we send our kids to school. And my, I sent my daughter as a teacher to teach these kids. And that happened. Like my son said, when he went to Portland to speak in Washington, D.C., he said, my sister was killed eight years ago and still nothing been done. Okay. And and it's true. Like when we met Obama in 2012, he said, we're in a battle and we're losing it. They have more money than we have. And it's true. The government of factory gives so much money millions of dollars to these politics to run, to cover up and block the laws. Like my son said, the only way we're going to change this, we have to take these people out, out of power, and put somebody there who care about us. Carlos, you've been through this firsthand. What are the, the parents going through tonight that you got that phone call, you were told what, what happened to, to Vicky? So many parents in the last 24 hours have gotten that notification. What are they going through right now? Excuse my language. They're going through hell because they never thought that their kid would not be safe at school. And that's a shame that politics get involved. Instead of helping the little people, they don't care. They only care about putting money into their pockets. And I know these parents are very upset. They're going to try to do everything they could. They're going to run into a wall because they have more money than we have. Like right now, the company from Connecticut that made the gun that killed my daughter, they filed for Chapter 11. And the insurance company had to take over to pay out $70 million. And that's what they do. That year when my daughter got killed, that gun they made over a million guns of that kind. I got friends, they go hunting, okay? They know that I don't like guns or nothing like that, but they use it for hunting. They go, this gun is not for hunting. This is made for the army to kill people. We're hearing a lot of different things from the, the parents. Some are saying already that they're angry at the school, some are angry at law enforcement, some are angry about guns, some are angry at a multitude of things, but what are their lives going to be like now, uh, away from from whatever they might believe that they that was attributable for this? What are their lives going to be like moving forward? You've been through it. It's not easy. I get my strength through her. And parents ask me, Carlos, how can you do it? You're talking to us calm, like nothing happened. And what I always told them, my daughter was a teacher. She passed the torch to me for me to help others. And that's what I do. I try to help others. I get my strength through her. Today, my son is a school teacher in Stratford High School, taking after her. 
you know, and that make me that make us proud. They knowing that her brother knew what happened to her. He wants to help out. If you keep it inside of you, it will eat you up. I feel comfortable when I talk to people in the playgrounds, the parents. It made me feel good. Carlos, my heart goes out to you and to all of the families that, that tonight are, are feeling the, the same thing. I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, thinking about you. Thank you for talking to me tonight. Thank you. Coming up next, what should you say to your young children about the shooting? How much should they know when we come back? People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Listening to an ABC News special, Texas Elementary School Shooting. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. Tonight, 19 families have received the news that their babies are gone, and the families of two teachers. A majority of the victims at Robb Elementary School were 10 years old. They were in the same classroom when the shooter came in. As we continue to cover this tonight, ABC's Maria Villarreal is on the scene and she has been from the beginning talking to heartbroken parents waiting for news on their children. Maria, what have you been hearing from them? Within probably 10 minutes of us uh, driving into town, we met with several families, a lot of them stopping us um, along the roadside as they were trying to get to the school to get answers about what had happened to their children. So what a lot of these families were telling us was that their child was still missing because at that point, we're talking about maybe one or two in the afternoon, um, they have been released, they've gone to the Civic Center, there have been reunifications going on for hours now, but their children were still missing. And there wasn't a lot of information coming out from law enforcement at that point. I met with uh, an aunt, for example, who was just driving around the neighborhood trying to see if she could get any information from you know any police officer at a roadblock. Um, and then the last person that we really have kept in touch with is a grandfather who was there from about one in the afternoon till way past 10 o'clock at night when we were there. You know, while his family went out and searched, whether it was a hospital, the civic center, you know, the neighborhoods, wherever it might be, while, while they did that, he wanted to stay at the hospital in case word came out that she was one of the victims. He wanted to be there so that he could be with her in that moment. Maria, it is heartbreaking. How did they get word? Was it there on scene? Were they getting phone calls? How were they finding out? I think for every family, it was different. We, we have heard that a lot of families were asked late in the day to supply DNA um, to lab techs in order for them to run it and to compare it to the victims that were in the school. Um, and that takes a while to process all of that DNA. And then, and then of course, on the flip side of it, they're, you know, they're living relatives and being able to compare that. And so um, a lot of families were waiting well into the night to find out about what had happened to their children. Um, spoke with Adolfo Cruz this morning. Um, he is the grandfather of Iliana Cruz Torres. And he did confirm to me that late, late at night, um, overnight, early morning, they did notify their family that she was one of the victims. And it was heartbreaking. Um, he just took a moment and I could tell that he was crying. I could tell that he was holding back tears. But I could tell there was also, you know, that, that 
underlying anger of parents that still have a lot of questions. The, the worst news that, that they could possibly get on the ground in Uvalde, Texas tonight, ABC's Maria Villarreal. Maria, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. There is so much heartache in this country right now. Putting politics aside, Americans are struggling to cope. Adults being overcome by emotion, trying to figure out how to talk to their children about it. Dr. Deborah Atkinson is at Texas Christian University, the School of Medicine there, specializing in general psychology and child psychology. She's joining me now on the line. And, Doctor, I'm going to speak personally here that this morning my wife and I decided we've got to tell our third grader and first grader generally what happened. We left it very broad, but we said somebody did something bad in Texas. They might hear about it at school, that they are safe, that, that we are here for them. But it was tough to do. Did we do the right thing? Well, the first thing I want to say to you is kudos to you because you did absolutely the right thing. That is one of the first things that you have to do with young children when something like this has happened. You have to be calm as the adult. You have to be calm and approach it um, in a way that where they do not see that you're overly distressed. You have to inform them something bad has happened without giving lots of details at first. And you have to assure them that they are going to be kept safe and their teachers are going to keep them safe. That's absolutely what you do. How do you assure them? My kids immediately had a million questions, very detailed questions that they wanted to know. Uh, They had their own emotions. We told them that hugs were available anytime they need it and just ask whatever they wanted to ask. But how far do you go in, in telling them when they want to know more? I think the thing you have to do is get yourself centered and calm first. And these are the things you need to be thinking about in the interaction with the child. You want to be calm. You want to not overshare a lot of extensive details, but you want to listen to their questions, ask them what their questions are, then ask them what's behind that question. And what I mean by that is ask them, tell me how you're feeling right now as you're asking that question. Are you sad? Are you worried? What's going on with you? And get them to tell you and really validate whatever they tell you. If they're sad, if they're worried, if they're angry, all very human emotions, all very normal in this type of situation. Validate that and just look at them and say, I understand because I feel some of that too. And so you're, but you're calm. They see that you're calm as you're discussing this with them. If they ask you specific questions like exactly what happened, you can say uh, the children were in the school. Uh, someone came into the school and, and really hurt the children badly. So you sort of start and you don't just directly hit them with, someone came in and shot the school and this many children were killed. You don't do that. You give us a little bit of information and then wait to see what they ask. And while they ask the questions, you let them process, check in with them how they're feeling and how they're reacting to it. You might be surprised what they tell you. Doctor, I know you specialize in children, but while I've got you, adults as well that can't tell you how many people I've heard from today who have said that they are a ball of emotions today. When we were at school drop-off this morning, every parent was talking about it. People were tearful about it. As adults, what do we do? That You think about it. You think about your children being in that situation. You think about if you don't have kids, a niece, a nephew. What do you do in this moment? So, Let me first of all say to you that I'm glad you're asking this question 
because honestly, we adults are not going to be able to help the children unless we are pretty centered to the best of our abilities ourselves. It's really important to let people talk about what's happening. I think people who are in any kind of a leadership role, whether at a school or a business, need to check in with the people that are working with them. Uh, One other thing that's super important right now is it's very normal for adults to try to do things to cope in a way that's not necessarily healthy, maybe drink a little more alcohol, uh, not get enough sleep, those types of things. It is really critical that we try to cope in the healthiest way we can right now. And we need to do it for ourselves. We need to do it for our children. We need to do it for society at large. Dr. Deborah Atkinson, Associate Professor at TCU School of Medicine. Doctor, thank you very much. Sir, you are so welcome. Thank you for doing this to call this to people's attention. Up next, the long-term impact of all the school shootings on children. When we return from ABC News. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to an ABC News special, Texas Elementary School Shooting. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. Welcome back. Just before the break, you heard from the doctor on what to tell your children tonight about what has unfolded in Uvalde. I want to go deeper into the topic of children and how they're impacted long term by all of this. John Woodrow Cox, the author of Children Under Fire, he is a Washington Post reporter as well. John, uh, you write about the the long-term impact, shooting after shooting, Newtown, Parkland, this, all in between the the shootings that have gone on. What is the impact long-term? You know, the impact can be devastating. You know, kids deal with uh, nightmares. They deal with uh, deep sensitivity to to noises. They uh, often feel guilty because of the kids uh, they couldn't save or that that they thought that they should. Um, children are often diagnosed with, you know, debilitating PTSD and have to uh, take antipsychotics and antidepressants. They, uh, in some cases, I know, have harmed themselves uh, and turned to substance abuse. So, you know, these effects uh, for the survivors can last with them for decades. And yeah, it goes beyond just school shootings, John, but everyday violence that is either felt personally or being reported on. Does that have a, in your reporting, a long term impact on children? Uh, it does. And in fact, you could argue that uh, that has a more lasting effect, that it has a more corrosive effect on children than um, sort of the, the one off uh, school shooting. Uh, we know that the uh, life expectancy of children and people who live in environments where there is chronic gun violence is is lower. Uh, They have more health problems. You know, I've spent a lot of time 
in those environments. And I often cite one particular study that I think is incredibly revealing. It was done in Chicago, and what they focused on was uh, uh, areas where there had been a homicide, uh, in neighborhoods where there had been a homicide. And the children in those neighborhoods did worse on their test scores the week after a homicide occurred there. And what that told me was that, you know, those kids didn't need to know the person who died. They didn't need to see it happen. They didn't even need to hear it for it to affect them that deeply. They just needed to know that someone in their neighborhood was shot to death. And a week later, uh, their test scores dropped. Every child in that school uh, will be deeply affected for the rest of their lives because they were just in the school that day. And it goes even beyond that. Family members, it's the siblings, it's the cousins. Uh, you know, the number of victims from this shooting really numbers in the thousands. It's not, it's not the three or four or five hundred kids who were there that day. It's, it's thousands. That data out of Chicago is is incredible. And for those who were at Rob Elementary School yesterday, and you talk about the length of time for them, the impact on them. Is there any way to? I don't want to say get over it, but to to lessen that a little bit. So, you know, there's a term that I hate, and it's that children are resilient. You know, we hear that term a lot, uh, and it's a, it's a dismissive um, way to think about the way that children deal with grief and trauma. Children can be resilient, but what that requires is adults stepping up and loving them and supporting them. And what these kids need really is to be inundated with opportunities to seek therapy. They need uh they need time to heal. They need patience. So it's not, these kids aren't doomed. You know, they're not doomed to a life of uh, debilitating trauma, even though inevitably that will be what some of them experience. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. What about the, the active shooter drills? Can that play an impact as role, play a role? So uh, active shooter drills that are done the wrong way um, can absolutely traumatize kids. Uh, they can. I mean, I, there was an example in Florida where a school uh, alerted, it was a high school, uh, where they alerted all their students that there was an, actually an active shooter on campus. And um, students panicked. And there was no active shooter. It was a test. And their excuse was, well, we couldn't get them to take it seriously otherwise, which is absurd. Uh, that is the wrong way to do an active shooter drill. We do know, too, though, that drills in certain cases, preparation has saved lives. Uh, that kids' lives have been saved because schools had prepared. Uh, they just have to be done in a trauma-informed way. Um, the bigger issue really are lockdowns, period. So not lockdown drills, but lockdowns. Uh, we did a study a couple of years ago that found that somewhere between 4 and 8 million kids experienced a lockdown uh, in a school year. A meaningful percentage of those kids thought they were going to die in their school that day. And they didn't, um, but they thought that they would. And, uh, you know, kids wept. They soiled themselves. They wrote, uh, texted their parents goodbye. One kid um, I interviewed wrote a will saying who he wanted his, uh, his toys to go to. So, again, um, the scope of this problem is so much bigger than uh, we tend to think it is. So many children being impacted. John Woodrow Cox, author of Children Under Fire, reporter for The Washington Post. John, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Up next, we'll go back live to Uvalde to get the latest on the investigation tonight. You're listening to an ABC News special. 
Texas elementary school shooting. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. Tonight, Robb Elementary School remains a crime scene. Police and FBI evidence teams document the scene. Inside were 22 victims, 19 of them children were killed. President Biden will be heading to Uvalde in the coming days. ABC's Jim Ryan live on scene back with us now. And Jim, what is happening there tonight? Well, the community is really circling the wagons now at this point. This community is coming together to help itself, really. Neighbors helping neighbors. We're seeing signs around, donate blood, uh, seeing food drives going on, water drives uh, in order to help the first responders who are operating uh, and controlling traffic and whatnot. So these things are all going on simultaneously. Two funeral homes in town say they won't be charging the families of the 21 people who were killed for their funeral services and their burials. So the community is really helping itself, its neighbors, helping neighbors here, and people from the outside reaching in to help as well, Alex. And just correcting myself, 21 rather than 22. But, Jim, the governor is saying today that his teams will be on scene for a very long time. What does the community need? You talk about them neighbor helping neighbor. What are they Mm -hmm. looking for at this point? Well, I mean, there's financial support that can be offered, too. A fundraiser from Victims First, which is a network of survivors and family members of uh, different uh, mass past shootings that we've had around the country. Uh, That organization is collecting donations for people affected by the tragedy here. Uh, Victims First is all one word, and it's a verified network of uh, different organizations that are helping here. Uh, Resources are being offered to, uh, to teachers, to parents and guardians, and counseling, of course, is being offered to the first responders, to the survivors, to the children, and their parents here as well. So... The the very earliest stages, just, what, 16 hours after the shooting happened, uh, the early steps to recovery are being taken from within here uh, with help being welcomed from the outside as well, Alex. Yeah, and and with that, uh, begin to process a lot of this. We saw some of the initial emotion yesterday, Jim. What stage is that emotion in now? Is it still incredibly raw? It is. It is. And especially the closer you get to the neighborhood where this happened, uh, people move slowly. I think they, they drive past the school and they look and uh, as as close as they can get, uh, considering all the police presence and yellow tape. Uh, beyond that, though, the community is, is thriving. It's 18,000 people or so who are living their lives uh, against the backdrop of this horrific incident that happened. The, the flags here, as they are across the country, are at half-mast now as the people of this community remember their own who were killed, Alex. Jim Ryan, live on scene tonight. America is heartbroken. Parents struggling for ways to tell their children what unfolded. How do you promise your kids that they're going to be safe when they go to school? You can't. The 19 children in Uvalde were not. Gun debate is renewed tonight. The fight is heating up. But for the families in Uvalde, their loved ones are dead at the hands of an 18-year-old shooter. For senior producer Trevor Hastings, I'm Alex Stone. You've been listening to special coverage tonight from ABC News. ABC News, winner of nine Edward R. Murrow Awards, including overall excellence in both television and radio. ABC News, America's number one news source. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. 
In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.